0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the network, and whenever I get a chance, I try to do an interview with an exciting author who has an exciting new book. And this week I'm very pleased to say that we have Matthew McWilliams on the show, and we'll be talking about his very timely book, The Rise of Trump, America's Authoritarian Spring. I should say that this is the first, I believe, of a series of books produced by Amherst College Press, and I believe the series is called Public Works, and uh, it's uh, I believe it's a lot of books about uh, topics of contemporary relevance. And this book certainly is uh, timely and relevant. So, uh, Matt, let me say, first of all, thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. Gr- happy to be here.
0: Absolutely. Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: I'm sure. Uh, I am a late-in-life uh, PhD. Uh, I started uh, studying uh, political science, uh, I think, when I was uh, uh, in the Ph.D. program. I was 55, and I just finally finished my dissertation uh, at 60. Um, and my dissertation uh, focused on something I was just fascinated with, and it was the authoritarianism in America. And, uh, you know, when I started work on the <clears throat> dissertation back about three years ago, authoritarianism was really a backwater of political science is uh, an uh, anachronism arcane. People, you know, just didn't really study it. But I was fascinated by it because of a wonderful book, uh, uh, Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. And the thesis of the book is that uh, was that authoritarianism was driving the uh, political polarization that we've seen in America since the uh, mid nineteen sixties. And that captured my attention, and, you know, as a late life uh, PhD, um, you know, I'm not under the publisher perish uh, <laughs> uh, constraints of so many academics. And uh, uh, that's why I started saying authoritarianism. Before that, um, unlike what Breitbart, uh, how Breitbart has described me, uh, I'm not 26 years old, as I said, I'm <laughs> 60, uh, and for years um, I've worked in uh, uh, politics in the United States, uh, uh, developing messages and communicating uh, for candidates and issues mm-hmm. and ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Breitbart had me down. My article first came out on authoritarianism as a 26-year-old living in my parents' Basement, living (laughs) off of government grants, which I thought was, as my thirty-year-old son pointed out, uh, that would make it. uh, He was born when I was negative four, but it it shows you something about the world of journalism uh, uh, and uh, fact checking. Yes, (laughs) that it's not all that good.
0: That's quite true. Well, you mentioned that authoritarianism is a uh, it's a traditional topic in. Uh, political science, and um, I know a little bit about it because I was uh, trained to be a Russian historian, Soviet historian, so it was uh, an important concept for us way back when. So m- maybe you could do us the favor of telling us a little bit about the history of the study of authoritarianism.
1: Yeah, it is. It, it was the, the term and the study is really a product of post World War II. And um, uh, it's Adorno's. Uh, Book as A D O R N O and several other authors on uh, the authoritarian personality, and it was an attempt to explain uh, what happened um, in uh, in Europe, Nazi Germany, and how this could have happened. And was there a personality uh, disposition behind this that uh, led to uh, the horrors that we saw in Europe during that period of World War Two? there's also another uh, book uh that was almost Simon it came before Adorno's book but it was it it focused on uh, authoritarianism and it's uh, eric fromm's fromm escape from freedom uh, and he's from the frankfurt school of, of psychologists and um both of them are really uh good starting points uh for authoritarianism in the study of it. Eric Fromm's book um, is haunting. Actually, There's, I was just rereading it the other day, and he was talking about uh, when authoritarianism is on the move, facts no longer matter, um, and we certainly, you know, see that today, where uh, things that are considered facts are are real lies or facts, uh, and facts are lies at times. Um, so, from Adorno onward. Uh, there was really a, a, a real flowering of the study of authoritarianism. Almost 2,000 some odd studies uh, that came out, papers and other things uh, that came out of acad- academia on authoritarianism. And, uh, you know, the real, one of the real sort of des- debates in the field was how you measure it. Uh, there have been several measurement schemes uh, that have been developed. Uh, one that is widely used uh, and is is quite good in many ways is uh, uh, Robert Altmaier's uh, RWA scale, uh, which is right-wing authoritarianism. Um, the problem with that scale is that it, it, it's a little uh, uh, deterministic and says that authoritarianism is only right-wing. And what we know around the world is that authoritarians can be right-wing, left-wing, center, and come from all over the place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other... Question with the scale itself, it asks, it's a little tautological, i.e., it describes behaviors, and if you say, yes, those are my behaviors, then you're authoritarian. Um, Whereas the uh, scale that has been developed, uh, Stanley Feldman uh, developed it um, in the 90s and was first put on a a, a political science poll in 1992, is a series of questions, just four on child rearing values, values. And uh, approaches that have nothing to do with politics or authoritarian behavior. Um, and those um, uh, questions are then uh, scaled, uh, answers to those questions are scaled, and people are put in authoritarian scale. And the thing that is really fascinating about it is that uh, people who test on these child ruling questions that they're uh, likely to be disposed to authoritarianism actually end up uh, uh, taking uh, uh, or having um, behaviors and attitudes that are authoritarian mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. in terms of politics. So it's quite remarkable here. You have questions about child rearing that predict uh, political behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so, But before we get to that and get to the survey yeah, that you sure. conducted and also the results of that survey, which are quite startling, so, as I understand it correctly, then, authoritarianism as a concept was originally produced by political scientists who were interested in explaining the rise of the Nazis, correct?
1: Yeah, and and, and uh, social scientists, political scientists, and psychologists.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, I see. Now,
1: and they were uh, not trying to predict, they were trying to explain. Retrospectively, to, yeah. Yeah, explain how did this happen, uh, and how can we stop it from happening, Uh, In the
0: future. mm -hmm. Now, in the 1950s and 60s, well, I remember from my time in graduate school in the late 1980s, that these concepts had fallen out of favor. Well, specifically in the Soviet context, I don't know what the German historian said about it, but if I were to come into a Russian history seminar and say, well, the Soviet Union, that's the authoritarian personality, people would have, uh, I don't know if they would have laughed at me, but I don't think they would have been favorably disposed. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how the uh, sort of significance or I guess the Um, believability of these concepts declined in the, I don't know what period to put it, 60s, 70s, 80s?
1: Well, yeah, it was really within a few years of the authoritarian personality being published, uh, there was a real backlash to it. And it it really, a lot of the backlash came not with the concept of authoritarianism, um, though it's hard to define in some ways, but in the measurement, because the authoritarian personality uh used a, uh, a, a, a three, at least, least three-dimensional scale to measure authoritarianism, and the problem with this, there are numerous problems with the scale, um, and one was, you know, a simple sampling problem, uh, acquiescent bias, the way the scale was worded. Um, but there were real questions raised about the validity of the scale. Um, which led, really, it was, you know, authoritarianism was sort of consigned to the backwater of American, uh, of political science and social psychology and many other uh, different, you know, there are different scales, the C scale for conservatism, there's Rokic, the scale, there are several different uh, things that arose to replace it.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So your study kind of goes against the grain here. Could we say that?
1: Well, in the 90s, Stanley Feldman uh, at a university at Stony Brook in uh, New York and others uh, started to revivify it. And Altmeier also Mm -hmm. worked hard at revivifying it also. Uh, He's uh, an academic in Canada. But uh, uh, Stanley Feldman came up with uh, this four-question authoritarian battery and uh, first was put on the ANES, American National Election Survey poll. And uh, he did an article with Karen Stenner and it showed that this the scale, authoritarian scale, uh, was very predictive of mm-hmm. what theory tells us would be authoritarian behavior. I see. And, uh, you know, that, and then followed by Heatherington and Weiler and a few others, uh, it, it put authoritarianism at least, back on the academic calendar, but far, far down <laughs> on the low end of it. <laughs> yeah, I see
0: what you mean. So it probably would be better to say that than your studies in the tradition of these studies from the nineties.
1: Right. And 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 you know they started in the nineties and moved on. Karen Stenner's book uh uh called The Authoritarian Dynamic came out in two thousand five. Um uh Heatherington and Weiler's book, uh which just won um of the converse Award one of the top uh, awards in American political science mm-hmm. uh came out a few years after that um, and uh, yeah and so it's it's moved back it's still not a mainstream study at all mm-hmm. in political science mm-hmm. so then let 's get right
0: to the definition of authoritarianism because I think probably a lot of what follows will will depend on that so what is authoritarianism in your understanding
1: Well, it is a disposition uh that uh to a certain uh, specific set of actions and one of those is obedience obedience to authority uh, <laughs> aggressive action towards uh norm breakers or uh anyone uh, uh identified as outside uh, anyone really identified as the other mm-hmm. um So submission to authority, uh, aggression to outsiders. And I think one of the key things for listeners to know is that it is not conservatism. (laughs) You know, that is a a great mistake. Um, Some conservatives are authoritarian, some actually liberals and independents and moderates are authoritarians too. But authoritarianism at its root is an aversion to difference. Uh, Its taproot is intolerance, where conservatism is, uh, uh, you know, support of status quo. They're much, much different, Um, much, much different in their locus and uh, and how they play out. And you can see that difference today playing out in the Republican Party, actually.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So
0: you could see just to give examples, you could see Stalin. As an authoritarian and some of the behaviors that supported him as authoritarianism. I don't know this is hypothetical or Chavez or Castro or, and these are figures on the left.
1: Right, right. You know, and that's, that's why, that's one kind of the, even though, I mean, uh, Robert Altmaier is a, a really phenomenal um, academic and also has come up with, you know, his scale was the RWA scale, which is right wing authoritarian. Uh, he also has a left-wing authoritarian scale now, but it, it is this uh, presumption that by many that authoritarians are only on the right, but that's just wrong. Mm-hmm. Hugo Chavez is a perfect example of an authoritarian on the left.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you say at various points in the book, if I'm not incorrect, I read it a couple days ago, but that fear is essential to authoritarianism and the behaviors that it prompts. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. And this goes, there's sort of a, uh, there's a, a difference between uh, Stenner, uh, Karen Stenner, authoritarian, da- authoritarian dynamic, and um, uh, Hetherington, Weiler, and Suey uh, uh, on the other side. And it's the question about authoritarian activation. And fear and threat uh, are, are. there's a, a large literature that, that Fear and threat activate authoritarianism. Um, Now, Heather et al. say that authoritarians are always on. They're ever vigilant. They are hardwired to be that way. So someone who's a one, most authoritarian on the scale, is always going to be vigilant. Um, And so they aren't activated by threat and fear. It is people farther down the scale who become more authoritarian in their actions when they feel threatened. Center on the other side says, on the other hand, says that authoritarianism is latent until it's activated by fear. And then there are different types of fear. Center uh, focuses on normative fear, which is, think of it this way, an easy way to think of it is, uh, attacks on conventions and norms, social conventions and norms, make, uh, activate authoritarians to take action. Uh, gay marriage would be an attack on a norm, uh, marriage as we, uh, uh, initially conceived it, as it was constructed socially. Uh, gay marriage would be an attack on that norm. It should elicit an authoritarian response. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, that, uh authoritarians are generally I agree with uh Hetherington and uh Weiler that that uh they are ever vigilant, but I think when threats are bound around, they are more reactive. I also think that uh 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 Heatherington and Weiler are absolutely right that non authoritarians uh act and react more like authoritarians when there is threat. Mm-hmm. And that threat can be, a whole bunch. It can be threat to norms, it can be threat to society, it can be threats to individuals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And, so- you know, the personal threat to, from terrorism uh, is one of the questions that Gallup and other people use to measure that uh, personal threat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to jump to the conclusion
0: really quickly, you, you conduct a survey in which you show that um, people – who answer certain questions, questions about um, child rearing uh, in a certain way, in an authoritarian way, are more likely to support Donald Trump. But before we get there and talk about the survey, um, that was a little sure, teaser. Sure. I want to talk about Donald Trump and his rhetoric. Uh, uh, well, I don't know rhetoric. I don't know the right word for it because what he says and what he says he's going to do, because it doesn't fall neatly into baskets like for everybody else. So how does what Donald Trump say, if it does, activate that fear?
1: yeah and, it, and it's funny because it that it is that the word rhetoric is is a probably doesn't work i i would say it's his uh trump's message yeah i think manner. that's right yeah and his manner is strong man stamina strength, and just uh think of the second debate where he loomed in the background over uh hillary clinton uh that's aggressive. Um, it's assertive, um, and it is the type of of uh, posturing that some people uh, like in a leader and want in a the leader. Uh, they feel that shows strength and stamina, and that strength and stamina is authority, and it will protect them from the things they fear in the world.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: His message. And that's what really struck me when I, you know, I'm finishing up my dissertation here. I got my notes to the grindstone. It's June of 2015. I'm working away. <laughs> uh, I'm not paying attention to much, uh, other than, you know, p- pushing that rock up the hill. It's a big rock and it's a steep hill. And, um, Donald Trump announces, I think it was June, what 16th was it? I did a little trouble. So like, and you know, I'm, I'm a political junkie in a lot of ways. I listened to his speech, and I was floored. Uh, Mexicans, you know, rapists, you, you've heard the language over and over again. That was language, uh, and that was a, a definition of the other that uh, has not been broadcast uh, or spoken in American politics, other than by, you know, uh, uh, well, no one's really ever said that. Pat Buchanan has gone far in terms of, of targeting immigrants as the other. Obviously his book, State of Emergency, does that. But in the 90s when he was running, um, he didn't go as far as Trump. And then as Trump, you know, so it is the identification of the other. It is, um, uh, policy statements. Uh, like, we're going to build a wall. We're going to make Mexico pay for it. That, you know, on their face are pretty, you know, not possible. That will not happen policy-wise. But they're strong and they tap into fear of the other. Muslims. We're going to prohibit Muslims from coming uh, to this country. We are going to uh close down mosques. Why? Because they're different than uh You know, some, uh, at least Donald Trump and some other people's view of America. They are the other. So he targeted group after group as the other, I mean, Muslims, uh, Latinos, uh, as the other. Um, And uh, he said we have to take action against them. And that is a signal fire, a clarion call to authoritarians. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you add the back you had the backdrop of what was going on um you know first uh uh the uh, jeb bush had talked about we have to you know immigrants come here as an act of law and you remember the debate where uh trump went out and attacked him for that and say it's not an act of love law. it's law breaking and we need order we need law there are rapists there whatever um, and so he drew a line there. Then there was the uh, uh, Paris terrorist attacks. And if you look at polling, that was an inflection point for Trump, because Trump's response was, stop all immigrant Muslims from coming into this country. Uh, and uh, whereas Ben Carson, who was doing well at that time, didn't respond in that very clear way and lost share. Uh, And then that was followed, obviously, by the San Bernardino attacks. And those things taken together, um, you know, were clearing call to authoritarians and uh, crystallized his authoritarian support.
2: Mm -hmm. I
1: I
0: think what surprised everyone, and I was listening, too, um, was the degree to which voters, and particularly in Iowa, I used to live in Iowa, I lived in Iowa for a long time, responded to this message as if they were all waiting there quietly for someone to come and say
1: it. Um, yeah, that's the latent, you know, that's the latent authoritarianism that, uh, Karen center would talk about.
0: Mm-hmm. And where was that before he said it? Was it just brewing in people's hearts or, uh, had this, um, desire, or I don't want to call it xenophobia, uh, but had this, um, I, I don't know what to call it. I really don't. I'm kind of at a loss for words. because I don't want to insult the people of Iowa who I love very much. Um uh, Where did that come from?
1: Well, the the, the authoritarianism, the disposition towards authoritarianism is extant in certain people. It's part, you know, it's socially learned and partially inherited. I mean, that's what uh, uh, Stenner would say. Um, uh, Altmyer would say it's all socially learned. Um, And it's in people. It doesn't mean it's not deterministic. It's got to be turned on, right? Right. But it's there until it's turned on. And, and there have to be conditions to turn it on. One is the presence of threat. We have these terrorist incidents, right, that occur. We've really had since 9-11, and then I was just writing about this today, a social science experiment uh, of threat. We've been under threat and told we're threatened since 9-11, day in and day out. And so we're more on edge. We're more vigilant. So you have threat, extent, threat in reality, you know, San Bernardino, Paris on television. And then you have a leader um, who is getting an incredible amount of media coverage. You look at the coverage on some months, Trump got 30 to one media coverage over his opponents. Mm-hmm uh broadcasting that message, and so you know think of it the gas is out the gas is, threat is pouring gas on the fire Trump's message lights the fire mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's where it came from mm-hmm. um, and you know the the larger problem is uh what happens after November eighth um because once activated, authoritarians are hard to put back in the box. Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the uh, sort of empirical core of this book, and that is the survey that you conducted and the results of that survey. Could you describe both of those for us?
1: Yeah, you know, the survey, as I was sitting and watching this unfold, uh, I finally said I have to to do a national survey on this. And I was fortunate, you know, uh, my dissertation committee said, you can't write any more for your dissertation. <laughs> Too long. Uh, stop it, stop it, stop it. But this is a really interesting question. I have some wonderful uh, uh, professors on my dissertation committee, all younger than I am, wonderful people. I'm smarter than I am. Um, and I put together a, a, a poll, questionnaire. Uh, they reviewed it and made some really brilliant, Comments that made it so much better, uh, and then we fielded it uh, through the University of Massachusetts. Uh, we fielded a 1,800 sample national poll, um, and we fielded it uh, uh, online, uh, December 10th through the 15th. And the context of this is important. It's about a month before the uh, Iowa caucuses, right? And it was uh, almost. Uh, it was a week after. Um, the San Bernardino, uh, terrorist attack shootings, mm-hmm. uh, which obviously came after Paris. So, terrorism and threat, uh, should be on people's minds. Uh, they've seen it on television, they should be worried about it. So, we fielded the polls, data comes back. Uh, I was out working in Minnesota doing qualitative research, focus groups in Duluth. I remember the data appeared in my, you know, the 1800 sample. Uh, responses to, you know, what is a 40 question poll, I think, uh, came into my inbox and it was 11 o'clock at night and I was tired. We've been doing qualitative research all day. I said, oh, I got to look at this. And, uh, you know, I looked at the first set of questions and I started to run some basic statistical tests and I was just floored because, you know, you have a, a, a theory, a hypothesis. My hypothesis was very simple that if we polled, we would find that people who tested high on the authoritarian scale supported Donald Trump and no other candidate in the Republican Party because he was the one who was projecting the authoritarian message and manner. And what I found was that's exactly what happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and as you know, that doesn't happen often no. <laughs> You have a theory and it actually uh, plays out. Usually it's not clear uh, or it's really clear that you are wrong. Uh, but here it wasn't. Um, so, you know, I went through the data, I double checked it, put it away, came back to it, checked it again, uh, then I tried to knock down the hypothesis of the results in any way I could by just building what would only be considered a Christmas tree model where you put in every, uh, uh, variable you can think, uh, of that might soak up and make authoritarianism not important. And it just hung in there. Mm-hmm. Um, then I tried, you know, uh, all sorts of different other approaches, logic, logic, you know, all these different analysis, but it was still there.
2: Mm-hmm. So-, so
1: I wrote up a little article. I thought, well, this is really interesting. Um, and I wrote up a, a, just a short, you know, two-page little article. Uh, I sent it off first to the New York Times. They came back and said, this is really interesting, but we don't have time for it. Um and then I said, well, no, I've had things published in Politico before. So I'll send over to Politico. They came back, said so we're very interested. And really, we went back and forth for uh, three weeks, uh, editing it, honing it, hmm. uh, uh, checking the data again uh, before they published it. So it was done end of December, but we spent three weeks editing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they put the uh, headline on it. Uh, the clickbait headline, which just, I rue the day that they did this, but they were great editors. You know, the one weird trait that describes Donald Trump, it's <laughs> much more complex than that, but that uh, generated, and the, the moment that that came out, I was having lunch, a or, or breakfast with my son and his wife-to-be, my wife and I were, and my phone just started going nuts. Yeah, but- and I think it, you know, gathered like a quarter million shares mm-hmm. in a short period of
0: time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, if you- If you remember, could you tell us what the really predictive questions were, the ones about child rearing?
1: Oh, sure. There are four. It's a simple scale, and it's not my scale. I mean, it's a scale that's been used by political scientists uh, studying this since 1992. And it asks, you know, there are a number of qualities uh, that people believe children should have. Uh, Every person thinks some qualities are more important than others. Uh, here four pairs of desirable qualities. Please choose which quality from each pair is more important. And the pairs are respect for elders or independence. Respect for elders, that's the authoritarian answer. Mm-hmm. Self-reliance or obedience. Obedience is the authoritarian. Good manners or curiosity, good manners. Being considerate or being well-behaved, being well-behaved. And so if you answer those or in the authoritarian, you would score a one on the scale. If you answer, you know, independence uh, or the others, you'd score a zero on the scale. And there are people who fall in between. And so what I did is I took that scale, all the people in the questionnaire, I looked at only uh, likely voters in the Republican primary caucus, because it was that's where we were back then, right? Uh, likely voters in the Republican primary caucus. I think I was like, 550 people and i said and i looked at if they supported trump or not uh and what we found is that uh authoritarians uh were statistically in a statistically significant and substantive way were more likely to support donald trump
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. really a stunning finding in so many ways and you know it wasn't just that, I mean, there was ideology was in the model, race, sex. You know, race is not going to be a, a large player in the Republican primary because I think there are only 14 African-Americans in the 554 sample. Um, but it's just, that's just the way it is. It's, but education, income, uh, uh, church attendance, all these uh, uh, variables that should be predictive of political behavior just washed out of the model. Mm-hmm. It was authoritarianism that soaked up all the uh, effect, or that was all the effect. Mm-hmm. Really fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, and and then the second model, I added in uh, uh, threat. Um, I had threat in the first model. I added an interaction term between threat and authoritarianism, uh, and everything else and then threat dropped down with just authoritarianism. Mm-hmm.
0: So I mean this is very, it's very interesting and very shocking. You're right. This doesn't happen very often. I don't know if any hypothesis I've ever had has been borne out like that. <laughs> that might be one time in a whole career. Right. No. I
1: mean, <laughs> well, and what was, you know, and I felt, uh, so, well, it's one poll. So we know a good poll, but you know, one out of 20 polls is wrong. Um, so, but the great thing is that Box came out. Uh, I talked to them about this. They were real interested in it. And they said, well, we're going to check it. And I said, let's go for it. And I gave them the questions. They had morning consult do it. Mark Hetherington advised them. Uh, they went out about, oh, probably four weeks after I did, maybe five weeks. They found the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that's interesting. That's good. Uh, good. Good.
1: So, yeah, I, well, that, that made me feel good because I felt a little, naked out
0: there <laughs> yeah I, I guess the first question i have about this is um it seems to me that it bears on the question whether the republican party now, that really is the most significant question to say i'm not going to say that i know that hillary clinton is going to win but it certainly looks like she's going to win um but the, the, the republican party will uh trundle on somehow but it seems to me that that this that that trump's discovery of this cohort of people who behave in this way and can be triggered in this way does have some significance for the future of the grand old party. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it definitely does. And this goes back to Hetherington and Weiler, Uh, Hetherington and Weiler said that authoritarians have been sorting out of democratic party, uh, out of independence uh, towards the Republican party. um, And that a large part of this polarization we're seeing is because of authoritarian movement into the Republican Party. As this has occurred, and they have a, a model that shows this, and then I extended their model with 12 years of data. I extended it to 20 years uh, with uh, building a 13,000 national sample from polls and showed that, yeah, actually their data, their uh, the effect that they were seeing is correct, and it extends for another eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, my effect wasn't as strong as they found, but it was still there and statistically significant. So you have authoritarians moving into the Republican Party over time. There's still authoritarian Democrats. There's still authoritarian independents, but they've been moving into the Republican Party. And at some point, there are enough of them in the party to make a difference in a nominating uh, uh primary uh, selection system if they're activated. And this was the year when they got activated and I think there was a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, what does that mean for the Republican Party going forward? Um, and you can see the difference in the, the split in the party. There are the Paul Ryan Republicans who are conservatives, status quo conservative, and then there are these they're not key party. It is an authoritarian bent of people led by Trump and other people who have started to jump on board. Chris Christie, Rudy Giuliani, others. Um, and so I think that there is a split in the Republican party right now um, that will express itself, uh, continue to express itself. And I think that they're looking at basically, um, uh, Uh, an internal war, the equivalent to what was fought after Goldwater lost in 64. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But this time, I think the, uh, it will either lead to a split or uh, another, a a nuanced authoritarian uh, becoming um, uh, the nominee in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's difficult for me to understand.
0: I was going to say, it's difficult for me to understand how the twain can possibly meet the the Ryans and the Trumps. They just seem dispositionally such, such, they're such very different people. And some Jeb Bush, yeah, he's just like from another planet compared to Donald Trump.
1: Yeah, I don't think they can. You know, and you've seen it in the, you know, I look at what Ryan and, and others have done is just Neville Chamberlain-like appeasement of Trump. The way you, you, you stop an authoritarian movement is by strongly voicing an alternative uh, to, um, uh, you know, many of the, uh, unconstitutional, uh, um, values and, and policies that Trump is espousing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that can't come from, it, it, I mean, it comes from the left or the Democrats, but it's much more effective within the party. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I would think that. If Hillary Clinton wins, we don't know that now, but if she does, Republicans will be unified in delegitimizing her, which is the rigged election is the new birtherism, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But they will be totally fractured on how to move forward. And Mm -hmm. that's where the Paul Ryan, Jeb Bush, Mitt Romney, John McCain versus Trump and Trump accolades. Uh, uh, the the twain will not meet and it
0: seems very unlikely given Donald Trump's personality that he's going to step aside in favor of the grand old party reuniting am I wrong about that?
1: no No, I don't think you're wrong about that at all he will, uh, I don't know what he'll do I mean he's totally unpredictable my sense is he he probably would want to be uh, a kingmaker in the the 2020 nominating uh, process the so people who want his, um, uh, uh, you know, endorsement want to come and kiss the ring.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably right. So I'm thinking of an electoral so that's, strategy
1: that's for a little bit of a mafia. <laughs> 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 you should use the mafia term, kissing yeah. the ring. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I I'm just trying to um, think of an electoral strategy that would actually work for the Republicans. And 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 one question that occurs to me is that. It may be the case. There's a reasonable hypothesis to put it in the terms of political science that uh, that this the activation of this pretty large cohort of 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 authoritarians, most of them being Republicans, um, is really dependent on Trump. Once Trump is gone, then they will revert to the norm.
1: You know, they could. That will that would all be an interesting thing to see. Um, but I. You know, I think the uh, counter to that is more likely. Uh, and that's there, Trump, when Trump leaves the field, I'm not sure he'll ever actually leave the field. I think he's going to be talking about a rigged election forever. But it creates the vacuum. And any uh, uh, political candidate who's an entrepreneur and doesn't really have a core set of values except to win, Uh, we'll see that there is a large group of people who can be harnessed and who become uh, monolithic support that's hard to chip away. And that basket of voters uh, becomes something in a primary that's determinant, so you're going to want it. I just think what you're likely to see is a more nuanced uh, version of Trump um, carrying the same messages but a little bit more coded
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and probably not running himself. He's done after this time. You think?
1: Oh yeah. I, I, well, you never know. I mean, so unpredictable, but, um, uh, so I, I can't answer that, but the, will someone take the Trump position? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. think, uh-huh. and you know, uh, and, and, and if Trump weren't so, ham-handed, uh, politically or so reactive. He's not ham-handed. He's so reactive. Um, uh, he had a, uh, I think an excellent chance of winning the presidency and he looked right before the first uh, debate. He was within a point nationally, a point and a half of Clinton. Um, but he has just continues to put a target on his back. uh and, uh, you know, so I, I, I don't think it's a losing strategy. I don't, it's not a strategy that I like as an American. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a losing strategy for Republicans to nominate a Trump like Right. Right. Uh, so
0: I, I'm not going to ask you what will happen to the United States if Trump will win. Nobody knows that, I suppose. Um, although you see a lot of speculation about it, (laughs) which I find kind of humorous. Um, But I will ask you this. What will happen to the Republican Party if he wins?
1: Oh, well, I think it's much easier for the Republican Party if he wins. Um, uh, Paul Ryan will lose the speakership. Um, uh, You know, I I think if he wins, the the Republican Party will probably hold the Senate. If he loses, they won't. So if he wins... uh, Paul Ryan's gone to speakership and, uh, uh, there, there will be a, uh, cleaning of house in the Republican party. And if you're either with Trump or against him, Mm -hmm. um, and there will be a, uh, um, a cleansing within the Republican party in my opinion,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I think they'll move to the right. Uh, and also within that, I think they'll lose some people. Um, But there will be others in the country, in voters, who are authoritarian and now sitting in the Democratic Party, who I bet would uh, hasten the partisan sorting between Republicans and Democrats.
0: Yeah, this is what I was actually getting after here, is that uh, if Trump wins and gains a certain amount of legitimacy, if you won't see more people answering yes to those four questions who are now Democrats.
1: Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of Democrats who answer yes to that. I don't think their answers to those questions will change, but their partisan ID will. So, yeah, you know, yeah. those questions are, are there shouldn't be much movement on those questions at mm-hmm. all because they measure disposition, but the behavior, which is where you vote, right mm-hmm. now they're, they're Democrats who are authoritarian and their partisanship, is still making them vote Democratic. On the flip side, and this is why I'm studying in a poll that goes in the field next week, there are non-authoritarians in the Republican Party who are voting for Trump because of their partisan ID, their partisan identification with the Republican Party. Um, And, you know, over time, looking at 20 years of data, Hetherington and and Weiler started this, I extended it, uh, what we see is higher amounts of defections of non-authoritarian Republicans to Democratic candidates and Democratic authoritarians to Republican candidates, mm-hmm. uh, except for African Americans who are authoritarian because uh, their race, uh, uh, voting for Obama, trumped their uh, authoritarianism. Mm-hmm.
0: I see. So let's talk a little bit about your future work. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. What exactly are you working on now?
1: Well, I just, uh, actually, I'm about to head to Europe uh, to uh, a conference called Shaping the Future of Europe, uh, where I'm speaking about authoritarianism in Europe, because these four questions, uh, I put these questions on uh, national polls in Europe. They haven't been asked there more than once or twice, uh, in Europe. And what we found is that these questions are predictive of alt-right, uh, nationalist, anti-immigrant, and neo-Nazi, uh, uh, party membership in Europe. So, for example, in Britain, uh authoritarians are more likely to support the United Kingdom Independence Party and to have voted for Brexit. Mm-hmm. Uh, authoritarians are more likely to support the National Front in France, Marine Le Pen. Authoritarians are more likely to support the Swedish Democrats, who are an anti immigrant Nazi <laughs> party. Mm-hmm. Uh, authoritarians are more likely to uh support obviously the neo Nazi Party in Germany, but also Uh, the neo-Nazi light party uh, alternative for Germany, uh, AFG. Um, And so, I mean, it is stunning uh, the theory is that these questions are cross-cultural, cross-geography, cross-politics, and the reality is we found in Europe uh, that they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm heading out to there and to talk about this, talk about this finding, because there are gigantic uh, elections coming up in Germany and France, especially in 2017 um, that uh, are very important to the future of civil society and democracy uh, in the EU um, and uh, you know, this this authoritarian activation has happened not just in the United States, it's happened uh, uh, in Europe
0: also mm-hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating and I uh hope that when that research comes out, we can talk to you again. And uh, let me say to everyone who's been listening to this podcast, thank you very much for listening. I'm Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And today we've been talking with Matt McWilliams about his new book, The Rise of Trump, America's Authoritarian Spring. It's just out from Amherst College Press. So thank you to the audience for listening. And, Matt, let me say thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, Marshall, thanks so much for having me. I hope I didn't bore anyone. (laughs) I don't
0: think you did. Thanks very much. (laughs) Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for your question.